besides Romans 8.31, which is the heart of the heart of the center of Romans. Turn to Jeremiah 23, please. Jeremiah 23 and the 29th verse. An unexpected verse for today. Please recall that the Salvation Army food drive is ongoing through the month of May. Keep it coming. I, too, would like to say Happy Mother's Day, and I was extremely aware today that when we say Happy Mother's Day, that for many, that day is a poignant day, a day that pierces the heart. There are moms whose children have preceded them into the presence of the Lord, and their joy today is mixed with that kind of sorrow, but What I intend and wish for you is the joy that knowing that they are walking in the truth and that they are in the fullness of joy beyond our imaginings. And think of that today. Because as John wrote, with the kind of tender mother's heart, I have no greater joy than this than to know that my children are walking in the truth. That's the truth, the enlightenment as to the person of Jesus. And there are moms whose children have strayed from what they've taught them and how they've brought them up. So when you say happy Mother's Day, you have to realize, I think, with a little bit of a heart of compassion that for some that's a poignant day. But my wish and my prayer is that you will live to see your children walking in the truth. For when we bring them up in the way that they should go, when they're old, they will not depart from it. And that's the assurance that we have from the scripture, the word of God. And so, also, there are those who recall their mothers, and their mothers have preceded them into the presence of the Lord. We should rejoice today that they are in the absolute fullness of joy and happiness at the right hand of God. There are pleasures forevermore. And for those, all moms, I do wish for you the best and the highest and best of God's grace and kindness. Jeremiah chapter 23, I want to read just for a moment, because this came into my mind toward the end of my meditations on this most spectacular verse. These next two verses, Romans 8, 31 to 32, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, presses to the absolute limit, and there is no limit, the divine promeity, God being for us, God being for creation. Universal divine promeity is the doctrine that we're ending and breaking the tape of this race in Romans. I said we're in the home stretch. Well, we're breaking the tape of the finish line right now in Romans. Jeremiah 23, for a couple more messages anyways, 29, Yahweh is speaking, God of Israel, God of all creation. He asks two questions. Both of them are what we might call rhetorical. And that's important for Romans because Romans is a rhetorical battle that Paul is in with an obvious opponent. And we're going to show that even again today. But the Yahweh says, isn't my word like fire? Says Yahweh. 
and like a sledgehammer that pulverizes rock. Maybe your translation says a hammer that breaks or shatters the rock in pieces. But it's better a sledgehammer that pulverizes rock. And of course, now we're in Romans 8.31. And I suppose it's fitting to come to the central verse in Romans, the epistle on Mother's Day. Because we're considering, after all, the divine mission of the Son of God, who in the fullness of time was born of a woman. He became flesh. He became sin. He became righteousness for us all. He became flesh for us all. He became sin for us all. He became righteousness for us all. Now, Paul asks seven rhetorical questions. And when I say rhetoric, I'm not meaning fancy talk that doesn't really mean something. Rhetoric was a very important exercise in the time in which Paul wrote. Rhetoric was studied by many in Paul's day under one of the great rhetoricians named Quintilian. Paul actually followed the rules of this rhetorician when he wrote Galatians. And there was an awareness of what we know as Socratic dialogue, Socrates' dialogue, way of teaching. Doug Campbell made the proposition that Romans was written in Socratic dialogue between Paul and an opponent, and I agree with him, and I've done a lot of research in it when I was away in Florida on that very idea of Socratic dialogue and that it was well known in Paul's time and that Paul did, in fact, employ that kind of dialogue. But Paul here asks seven rhetorical questions at this climactic point in his gospel. For Romans is the proclamation of Paul's gospel, as well as the demolition of a false gospel. Really, in demolishing a gospel that comes against Paul's gospel, he demolishes all false gospels. And there are many forms of the false gospel in our time. Paul asks seven rhetorical questions. Each one of them is a hammer blow. Each one of them requires an answer that is a sledgehammer blow on false gospels, on the illusion that someone or something, even ourselves, can separate us from the inescapable love of God. Seven rhetorical questions. We'll hit two of them today. After the phenomenal declarations of universal divine promeity that we discovered in Romans 8, 28 through 30, the word of Yahweh is like a hammer in the hands of the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul asks a series of these questions that require, in fact, they demand the answer. And the answers go like this in order. Nothing Nobody, of course, nobody, 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 and no. And this is like Paul saying all these things to another gospel preacher who doesn't really have the gospel. So he delivers seven hammer blows that smashes to pieces the argument against the gospel of God about his son. It is my firm conviction now coming to an end of Romans, at least at end of our present treatment of Romans, that Paul is employing a strategy that he outlined in an epistle written a year or two before 
Romans, 2 Corinthians, written before Romans. The weapons of our warfare are not fragile, but mighty in the hand of God to the pulling down of strongholds and to the demolition of every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So Paul is using the hammer here. And he is breaking into pieces an argument against the gospel of God about his son that has been presented by an agent of Satan whom Paul says is about to be broken in pieces under their feet, the feet of the Roman believers. In other words, the cause of dissension and division, the adversary is about to be broken in pieces by the hammer of the word under their feet, he said in Romans sixteen twenty, with the demolition of an argument presented by the adversary There is a demolition of walls that separate Christians. By the sledgehammer of the word, Paul six times shatters the illusion of the false gospel and once with infinite power establishes the gospel of God, as it's called in Romans 1, 1 to 4. The gospel of God, which is grounded in, in universal divine promeity, God being for his creation in all of its times and for all of humanity in all of its times. This promeity in turn is rooted in the love of God in Christ Jesus, which we're going to find as a phrase in Romans eight thirty-five and 39 as we conclude our present treatment of Romans. So then, Yahweh himself asks questions. Isn't my word like a fire? And I would say, yes, it is. It's the word that has burned off and consumed in us so many things that would bring us into self-destruction. It is his word, he said. Isn't it like a hammer that shatters the rock? The first two questions are presented in Romans 8.31. Romans 8.31a says, Tiun Erumen pros tauta. Paul writes in the Greek, it's very much more revelatory than reading it in the English. And in Romans 8.31, Iho theos huper hemon, tis kath hemon. And that simply means, what shall we say then? And Paul says, tiun erumen in the Greek is customary to use in rhetoric in dialogue and dialectic. And it simply means, what should we say then? It's used by Paul, not only here, but in Romans 4, 1, 6, 1, 7, 7, and 9, 14, and 9, 30. So you get the idea that Paul is on a track in which he develops a cogent and coherent argument for the gospel of universal reconciliation in God's Son. Again, he uses it several times. And sometimes he simply says, what then? He just shortens it up and abbreviates the statement. Again, a rhetorical device. What then? He uses that in Romans 3.3, Romans 3.9, 6.15, and 11.7. You can see it fanned out throughout the entire argument. Throughout Romans, then, it's obvious that Paul is presenting a cogent, coherent argument. And it climaxes here in Romans 8 with an ex- a, a 
twofold question. What shall we say then against these things? Now, this little word pros, P-R-O-S, can mean face-to-face or together with. It can have a friendly meaning, but it can also mean hostile, a hostile meaning. I believe what Paul is saying is, what can we say against these things? What can we say against what things? Well, everything from Romans 1.1 to Romans 8.30, but especially 8.28 to 30. What can we say against these things? He's still dealing with an interlocutor, with a, an opponent, with an opposing gospel, and really with all opposing gospels to his, which is Paul's gospel is the gospel of God about his son. He received it not by a committee, not by a denominational dogma, but by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Throughout Romans, then, he presents these questions. But here's climactically, he said, what should we say? Or we could say, to what conclusion are we forced? And what should we say against these things? Here, Paul lays down the gauntlet one more time to his opponent. He's still fighting the fight here, and he fights the fight until his death. I fought the good fight. I ran the course. I kept the faith. Paul evidently here lays down the gauntlet one more time to his opponent with whom he has had or is still having a dialectic of contradictories. In other words, something that absolutely must be defeated is this gospel demolished pulverized by the sledgehammer of the word. Tauta is the word that is used here for these things. Tauta, these things. It's a demonstrative pronoun. I'm doing a little bit exegesis to show you that I'm not fooling around with this passage here and that it has a basis in the original Greek text. It's a accusative case, which simply means that it points to all the things that Paul had previously expounded, especially in Romans 8, but also throughout Romans, like 321 to 31, 425, 512 to 21, Romans 8, 1 to 3, and then Romans 8, 12, following, climaxing in Romans 8, 28 to 30. What then can we say against these things, against the conclusions reached in Romans 8, 28 to 30? Rhetorically, the answer demanded is nothing. What do you got against these things? What have you got that can succeed against these things? Nothing. For the reason that there is no condition to be met by human beings to be saved, because of that, there's no condition met or unmet by human beings that can cancel their salvation. No objection put to this truth can change or alter the truth. Because God's grace is unconditional, it has to be universally applied, and in fact, it has been universally applied to all human beings because of, and indeed in, the very Christ event. For when one died for all, then all died. And when one arose from the dead, all were made alive in him and justified. And when Christ was glorified at God's right hand in the heavens, so were all human beings. He made us alive 
with the life of Christ, who were dead in trespasses and sins, and he raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly places. In the clause, if God is for us, which is a first-class condition of this little conditional particle E, which we would translate sometimes as if, it's a first-class condition, which means if, we'd probably translate it since, since emphatically, since it's true. In the clause, if God is for us, there's an ellipsis. There's no verb there like is. It has to be filled in with the present active indicative tense of a me. So we have God as the I am. Literally, it says this without the verb, and there is no verb. Literally, it says, if God for us, and he most emphatically is, the fulfilled condition of the particle E, and he most emphatically is, and then I would add to that, if God is, and he is, he is who he is. I am that I am. If God is, and he is, then he is for us. So literally, Romans 8.32, 8.31 rather, if God for us, the second rhetorical question, and he most emphatically is, then who Against us. If God is for all of his creation and all of humanity, who is against us? Furthermore, Paul is teaching that he acted in a way to secure eternal redemption for all through the blood of his son. In Romans 3.23, all sinned and are justified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus by grace. So then, who is against us? E ho theos huper hemon, tis kath hemon, who can be against us? What can we say against these things is the first rhetorical question, demanding the answer, nothing. You got nothing. If God is for us, second question, and he is, then who can be against us? So the answer to these two rhetorical questions are nothing and no one. There is God and there is nothing. There is God and there is nothing. When God is all in all, there will be God and then there will be nothing, nothing else. There is God and then there is no one. Nothing and no one is outside of the reality of God being all in all. I'll say that again. Nothing and no one is outside the reality of God being all in all. When God is all in all, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, and to him that's an already realized reality with the word to die. Who is outside of God to stand against us? Nobody. You say, what about principalities and powers? That's coming up. That's an objection that the interlocutor makes. What about principalities and powers? Oh, you mean those beings over whom Christ is the head? That he has reconciled principalities and powers as well as humanity and all things in heaven and on earth by the blood of his cross? But that's coming up, I'm anticipating. So then, since our task is interpretation, 
in Romans. That's been our task. And our goal is understanding. We have to interpret this second question as this. Since God is for us, as shown in these many ways, then who can be effectively or successfully against us? The second meaning has to do with a juridical setting, a setting in a courtroom in which an accuser may accuse. So Paul uses, but you know what's remarkable here? Paul uses us here, and by doing so, he actually includes his opponent, embraces his opponent. He does the same thing at the end of Galatians, but that, I'm not going to teach that today, but it's, that is a remarkable thing. Paul uses us to include himself and his rhetorical opponent in the universality of divine promeity. What's more subtly going on here then, which we might not be able to see immediately, is that Paul is also saying that no one can be effectively or successfully against his gospel. There's no case against his gospel that can possibly stand, is what he's saying. And Paul had to constantly, as Philippians 1.16 says, even his enemies knew that he was set or appointed for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Paul here has defended it with infinite wisdom, God's infinite wisdom. What's more subtly going on then is Paul is saying there's no one who can effectively or successfully argue against his gospel, which in the opening words of Romans 1.1 is called God's good news. It's the same as saying in Hebrews 6.5, since you have tasted of the good word of God. You see, once we've tasted of this good word of God, then we can taste the phonies. Once you've tasted a Georgia peach in Georgia in August, bought from a stand on the side of the road, you aren't going to, you're going to distinguish that peach from these things that they sell in the grocery store off season that don't even have peach in them. They don't even have any flavor at all. Once you've tasted that the Lord is good and that he is benevolent to all his creation, there's no comparison with anything else. There's no turning back. Once you've understood this gospel, there's no turning back. And we should put on the defensive those who would accuse our gospel. Put them on the defensive. So that's what Paul has done. But he does it graciously and lovingly. And in the end, he embraces his opponent as an object of divine promeity. And so more specifically, it is God's good news We're talking about God's good news that Paul defends. He calls it my gospel. But it's God's good news. And according to Romans 1, it's God's good news, which he promised in the writings of the holy prophets. It's all in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament, but it's only now been revealed and made known just how to see it there. So here's my definition for the good news or the gospel. One definition, at least. The good news of God, or the good word of God, is divine intelligence made humanly intelligible. Divine intelligence made humanly intelligible.
by the Holy Spirit. What is understanding? Spiritual understanding. Divine information. Divine intelligence. A divine viewpoint made intelligible or understandable to human beings by the Holy Spirit. Divine intelligence is something we could not know. But we have the mind of Christ. Something we would not know. But it's made intelligible or understandable, graspable by human beings, by the Holy Spirit. So let me, again, give a definition. If I were writing a systematic theology, I would put this as a major thesis point. The good news of God or the good word of God is divine intelligence made humanly intelligible by the Holy Spirit of a universal restoration, Acts 3.21, that is, a universal recapitulation, Ephesians 1.10. That is, a universal reconciliation, Colossians 1.10, which is all about his son, and which is to be, and in fact has been, brought about through his son and in his son. Once again, the good news of God, or the good word of God, is divine intelligence made humanly intelligible by the Holy Spirit of a universal restoration That is a universal recapitulation in Christ. That is a universal reconciliation, which is all about God's son and which is to be and in God's view has been brought about through his son and in his son. Because of the fulfilled condition of the conditional particle E, that little word E-I, God for us is an emphatically established reality, a fact. And because in verse 32, God gave over his son, uses the same word that the Jewish Christian view presented in Romans 1, 24, 26, 28, God gives them over. He gives them over. He gives them over to such and such a, an idolatrous sinfulness. Here, Paul says, how about this? God gave his son over on behalf of us all. How much more then can we be sure that he will freely give us all things because he did not spare his son? This anticipates Romans 8.32 where we're not going today except to say this. God gave over his own son and did not spare him. His son is an heir, H-E-I-R, just like Isaac was the heir as Abraham's son. Because it says in Genesis 21, in Isaac shall your seed be called. And therefore, God spared Isaac because in Isaac, the seed would be called. But God did not spare the seed when he came, which is Christ, so that we would all become heirs in him. I know that's a tough one to handle, but that's anticipating. That's just breaking up the fallow ground for next time when we hit with when we hit 832, whenever that will be. And so if God is God gave over his son in behalf of us all, for us all, then it's an inescapable conclusion that God is for all of humanity and all of creation. It was God's first resolution made in eternity before time to sum up all things in Christ in Ephesians 1, 9 through 11 through the peace that was eternally secured by the blood of Christ's cross, leading to the inevitable and in fact, already done to tell us die reconciliation of all things, universal reconciliation. Forget about everything being done in AD 70. It was all done in AD 30. 
to be manifested in some place and time that's future to us and other than right here. The reason I keep on moving is because it's good to be anywhere but here. And I mean this world. It's good to be anywhere but here. I like that scene in Private Ryan on Omaha Beach when the bombs are blowing everyone up all around them and someone says to the captain, where should we go? And he said, anywhere but here. And so, some of you may not know that the bombs are bursting all around. So let's keep moving. Paul presses here, and I like that word apokatalaxi, tapanta, in Colossians 1.20, because it adds another A word to apokatastasis and anakephaliosis. There is apokatalaxi, tapanta, universal reconciliation. That's a translation, incidentally. Got a problem with it? Take it up with God. So here's another thesis, and this is a summary of where we are right now. Paul presses universal divine promeity, God being for us, to its absolute extreme right here. By so doing, the imperial slave of the king of kings, Paul, has not only effectively declared a universal reconciliation, but he has also demolished the argument of his opponent and pulled down at the same time walls of partition constructed of biases between warring groups of believers in Rome. Isn't my word like a hammer? It breaks the rock. It breaks the walls made of stone. It breaks hearts made of stone. God demolishes idolatry and addiction. And addiction is nothing more than an idolatrous attentiveness to something other than God. He breaks it. He breaks that which holds us. He demolishes the ropes that tie us in the fire and the furnace of his word. What's Paul doing here? What is he doing here in Romans the epistle? He's presenting his gospel to augment the limited understanding of the saints in Rome. The biggest problem today among believers in the United States of America is a limitation of understanding of the gospel. And therefore God has raised up individuals to augment that limited understanding and to make intelligible to humans a divine intelligence. Paul is presenting his gospel to augment the limited understanding of the saints in Rome. Why is another question. And the answer is because their limited enlightenment or partial scatosis. The scatosis is the Blackout of the soul. There's a partial scatosis, a partial understanding of the gospel, a limited horizon that the gospel reaches, which demands some doctrine of hell, eternal punishment for people, which is a damnable doctrine, and it's an evil doctrine, and it is a satanic opposition to the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so there is a partial scatosis, So Paul, what's he doing? Because of their limited enlightenment in Rome, 
due to the receiving by some of a nomistic or legalistic gospel, better, a nomistic gospel, there's been a creation of divisions there. Romans 16, 17 to 20. So Paul is acting like a Socratic teacher. He's allowing his readers and his opponent to arrive at an awareness of the limitlessness of the horizon of redemption. Again, he's allowing his readers and his opponent also to arrive at an awareness of the limitlessness of the horizon of redemption, reconciliation, and rectification which God has enacted in his son and made effective in both individuals and in community lives is making that effective now. Therefore, after saying, what then are we to say against these things? The apostle of Jesus Christ makes the central twofold declaration of the gospel of God and the central declaration of Romans, the epistle, which is right here. If God is for us in all these ways, and he most certainly is, then who can be against us? So the second question must be taken first at face value. First, you take it at face value. That means if God has acted in such a way to reconcile all beings and all things, then who is left to be against us? Secondly, the question can be taken in a rhetorical, juridical way or a judicial way, as if in a court of law. If God is for us, in the ways enumerated and expounded throughout Romans, climaxing in Romans eight twenty-eight to 30, then who can be effectively or successfully against us in any court of law? The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. Who can succeed against us also couches the question. Within there is another question. Who can succeed in bringing an objection or another gospel against my gospel, Paul is saying. Thirdly, though it's unsaid, the way we've studied Romans it makes it very clear. The unsaid question is begged here. You begged this question. The question is begged to be asked. Paul is asking this, really, to all those who hear him. If God is for us in all these ways, and if God is for us all, then why are you, some of you, against each other? John puts it differently in 1 John 3.20, and he effectively asks, why are you against yourself? If your own heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. In other words, God knows all things, means that he is always aware of all the things that Paul has spoken of, the ways in which God is for us. So if our own heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. So some people argue against the gospel because they can't accept its forgiveness for themselves. Now, ever since I was about, well, I think I was in my early 20s, I've had a dialogue with A.T. Robertson, his word pictures of the Greek New Testament. And I always refer to him on almost every verse, just at least passingly. And on Romans 8.31, he said this. For these things, pros tauta, he says, 
From 8.12 on, Paul has made a triumphant presentation of the reasons for the certainty of final sanctification of the sons of God. He has reached the climax with glorification in verse 30. But then he says this, and I think he got this right. But then Paul lets the objector have his say, as he usually does, so that in verses 31 to 39, he considers the objection or objections. If God is for us, who is against us? And then the conditions of the first class carries Paul's challenge to all doubters. There is no one on a par with God. And so I agree with this great Southern Baptist exegete, but I would also make a wider case. I'd bring it into a wider horizon. I would say this. Paul has made a triumphant presentation of the reasons for the certainty of final sanctification for all of humanity. All are to be made alive in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, so all will be made sons of God. And all will be conformed into the image of God's Son. That is Christ, who is said to be the image of God. Let us make humanity in general in our image. And guess what? Christ is the image of God. Let us make all humanity be in Christ. That's what Genesis 1.26 says. So, the so-called good news, and I say so-called, you want to know how Paul thinks about that, read Galatians on your own. The so-called good news, parentheses, it's not so good. Of the rhetorical opponent of Paul, and again, I agree with Campbell's assertion, Douglas Campbell's assertion that at least much of Romans 1 to 4 and much of the Romans epistle is in the form of a Socratic dialogue. And the Romans would have understood this. They were better educated than we are. Yesterday, I was at a cash register and I had a 20 and a 10. She gave me a 20 and a 10 and the girl said, are these the same people on the 20 and the 10? And I had to read it myself. I said, no, this is Hamilton on the 10 and Jackson on the 20. And she said, I wish they would teach us that in school. And I went, wait, hope. And I said, then I said to her, history is good to know whether it's good or bad history. It's good to know. And she said, yes, it is. You see, but our, they're not teaching history anymore. This big movie about Tolkien is out. Everybody's going to the movie. And they skipped the biggest part about it, which was his faith. They actually showed some scenes to an audience in which his faith was at the center of his whole inspiration to write The Lord of the Rings, etc. And the audience was, quote, too bored. So Disney, Mickey et al., Eliminated the faith part. So, you know, why go to the movie? That's not, it's not, it isn't even true. If a man's faith at the center of his whole being is the reason for his creativity and you skip that, then that's a useless movie. I'm not going to say don't go to it, and some of you already have, and there's no condemnation. It's stupid that you paid the money for it, but don't (laughs) condemn yourself. Stop it. Stop condemning yourself. I'd rather go see Detective Pikachu, or whatever his name is. So then, 
me take a peek at you and see what's in your heart. The, not only, <laughs> see, I believe, though, that when Paul is arguing against this nomistic gospel, that he's not only teaching against a gospel of justification by works, but he's also demolishing a gospel of justification by individuals' faith. And therefore, it's the faithfulness of Christ. So this, the, the theologians that call themselves universalists want to talk about an eventual restoration of all things. And they use the word eventual. And so some people die without believing, and they believe in post-death salvation, which, of course, is a biblical thing. But they believe that there has to be ages in the yet future where God can convince some people to believe. And that, to me, is just purgatory all over again. But the reason they say this is because they assume that repentance and faith is what leads to salvation, and it isn't. The finished work of Christ is what leads to salvation. And so we have much more to say about that. You can, I refer you to Wednesday's message in which repentance is not the way of salvation, and we proved it. So the so-called good news of this other opponent, it's not so good. It's not so good. Neither is justification by individual faith good news. That's not good news because those who don't believe are damned forever into an eternal blast furnace and torture chamber that makes concentration camps look like picnic grounds. And that's not belittling those concentration camps by a long shot. But it sure does blaspheme the nature and the benevolence of God, those doctrines of eternal damnation. By the Socratic method, the teacher doesn't directly teach direct information. But according to American Heritage College Dictionary, by Socratic method, the teacher asks a series of questions with the result that the student comes either to the desired knowledge by answering the questions or to a deeper awareness of the limits of knowledge. This is a method of discovery rather than of direct impartation of information or knowledge. Paul uses this in Romans. So it's worth noting that Paul uses the word us, Haman, in a way that includes his rhetorical opponent. Paul's gospel is all-inclusive while the opponent's gospel excludes all who do not adhere to the law of Moses. Even though this teacher teaches that Christ died, and he'll take Isaiah 53 and say he died for our sins, meaning the sins of Israel. John understood that part of that Jewish Christian gospel and took umbrage with it, and he said he died not for our sins only. He is the satisfaction, the expiation, the putting away of the sins of the whole world, not for our Jewish sins only. And that's why they wanted to circumcise Gentiles, because if they brought Gentiles in under Moses' law, then they could benefit from Christ dying for the sins of Israel, because they'd be part of Israel. That's not what Paul teaches. That's not really that good. <laughs> that's not good news at all, in fact. And that's why I take such umbrage, or I take such opposition against sacramental righteousness today by the Roman Catholic Church and other people who think that there's something very salvific attached to baptismal or Eucharistic sacraments or other sacraments. 
or priest putting oil on your head called extreme unction. Extreme unction. I already have an unction, and it's the Holy Spirit. Stay away from my deathbed. Now then, this is the gospel of the glory of the Christ, which opposes that false gospel. Paul's gospel is all-inclusive, while his opponent's gospel excludes all who do not adhere to the Moses law, even though according to that gospel, Christ did die for the sins of Israel. Consequently, Paul knows that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, Romans 3.24-25, compared with 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So he included his opponent as one who has benefited from God's action in Christ and from Christ's passion and death and his resurrection and exaltation, where now, after his exaltation, he is in active in a great activity on behalf of us all. You see, Jesus died, and in dying, he passively received. In his resurrection, he actively intercedes. So redemption is a matter of an end and a mediation. Paul never mentions the word priest about Jesus Christ one time in all of Romans. He uses the word priest metaphorically for himself because he said, I'm like a priest offering on a platter the Gentiles to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He said in Romans 15, 16, but he never uses priest to describe Jesus Christ. But guess what Romans 8, 34 does, and I'm anticipating. Romans 8, 34 talks about Christ at God's right hand, risen from the dead, at God's right hand as the proof of expiation of the sins of the world, and he acts on behalf of us all as our great high priest. So Romans 8.34 opens the door to an entire letter called the Epistle to the Hebrews, where the word priest is used 28 times. Just like lamb is used 28 times in Revelation, priest is used 28 times in Hebrews mostly in connection with a certain one who is called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Romans 8.34 then could be, it's the door that opens to all of Hebrews. And so we'll be dealing with that. And that expounds, Hebrews simply is an exposition of Psalm 110.4. You, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, also, but it is also understood in Psalm 2.7, today you are my son, and under whose feet God brings all his enemies in Psalm 110.1. So Hebrews is basically an exposition of three Psalm verses, Psalm 2.7, Psalm 110.1, and Psalm 110.4. And so if Paul didn't write Hebrews, he sure did inspire it by Romans. The knowledge of the glory of God and this is why I called it reading Romans with the light on the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ and shone into Paul's religiously darkened heart. Paul referred to his own inner being as tohu wabohu chaos void and without form. When he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, he said, 
He who said light shine in darkness shone into my heart. Giving the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Genesis 1, 3. The knowledge then of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ is a knowledge that will be had by all. Jeremiah 31, 34 says it. They will all know me. They will all know me. There won't be any more evangelism. There won't be people going around saying, know the Lord, know the Lord, for they will all know me, he said. Jeremiah 31, 34. And he doesn't just mean all Israel. So then, he means all who are the beneficiaries of a new covenant, which is Jesus Christ giving his life as a ransom for all. So, Matthew 26, 28, Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 35, 45, 1 Timothy 2, 6. So then, it's a knowledge that will be had by all. It is a knowledge of the glory of God that will be resplendent in all the earth, according to Habakkuk 2, 14, as it is already in heaven. This is the gospel of the glory of the Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says. It doesn't say the glorious gospel. It says the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is also known as Paul's gospel, which he calls my gospel at the beginning and the end of Romans, Romans 2.16 and 16.25. It is also known as the gospel of God about his son in Romans 1, 1 to 4. Now, seeing the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ means seeing all of humanity glorified in him. Just as hearing his voice like cascading waters, as Revelation 1.15, is hearing the voice of all the new creation and of all humanity in him. When John heard the voice of the Son of Man, his voice was as many waters, and many waters is symbolic of all the nations, So all the nations were heard through the mouth of Jesus Christ because all the nations are embodied in him. When Paul saw the face of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of the glory of God, he not only saw the the deity of Christ expressing the Father, for to see me you see the Father. He also saw in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining from the face of Jesus Christ all of humanity embodied in him. So he had a gospel of universal reconciliation. No doubt about it. The strongest put Paul up against all those people called universalists. And I don't like to use that term because there are Unitarians or Socinians as they are called. Unitarians deny the deity of Christ, the triunity of God and the virgin birth. You want to be called that? I don't. So we have to define what we mean, and that's why I always say it's the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God. But if you put Paul up against all the universalists that are famous in our day and famous from Origen to Ariagena and from Ariagena to Juliana of Norwich, from Juliana of Norwich all the way up through Schleiermacher and Barth, And Jürgen Moltmann, Paul is the strongest universalist by far, if you read him right. So in closing, God's love for everyone 
is the point in Romans. God's love for everyone is constituted in no small part by the will of God that all human beings, pantas anthropus, would be saved. So thenai. And that's 1 Timothy 2.4. And come to a knowledge of the truth. I want to close with this. When Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.1 to pray for all people, and I love Vicky's song about that hour of prayer. When he said to pray for all men, that we may live lives of godliness and peacefulness and quietness. Because it's the will of God, our Savior, that all humans be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Come to the knowledge of the truth. He's already saved all human beings, but not all human beings have yet come to the knowledge of that truth. So if you love somebody who doesn't believe the gospel, then you don't have to pray that they'll be saved. All are saved. You just have to pray that they'll come to the knowledge of the truth of the divine primaity of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and they wake up to their own reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, therefore the world is reconciled. I like what Karl Barth said. He said, all the world is objectively reconciled, but through faith that God gives through faith, he evokes faith, a person becomes subjectively, they begin to understand that they are reconciled. They begin to experience that reconciliation, which is why Paul said the whole world's reconciled. So be reconciled. So in Romans, the epistle, God's word is like a sledgehammer. The rock that pulverizes or the hammer that pulverizes the rock is the word of God that pulverizes the illusions that someone or something can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God's word, like a sledgehammer, pulverizes the stony heart. And the stony heart is what keeps people from understanding and fully realizing the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to love all of humankind. And by loving all of humankind, willing their best, willing the highest and best for them, willing the ultimate good for them. We can will the ultimate good for all humankind, and especially for those that are close to us and our children and grandchildren and perhaps our parents or grandparents or those in our family whom we wish to come to understand this truth. We can will the good, but we can't bring it about. The difference is God's love wills the good and has brought it about. And so we make petition and prayer in our helplessness that you would bring to the knowledge of the truth of your universal divine primaity to certain people who come to mind right now in our own minds and hearts, that you'll bring them to the knowledge of the truth. Because as the mother's greatest joy and the father's greatest joy is that their children walk in the truth. How can we walk in the truth unless we're awakened to the truth? And so we thank you, Father, for this wonderful privilege. And as our chest.